Good morning. It's great to be here with you from Texas. I grew up in Dallas. I was told not to mention the Cowboys this morning, so this is me not mentioning the Cowboys. I didn't. Now I live in a little town uh, outside of Houston called College Station, Texas, home of Texas A&M University, the real 12th man, which I like to make very clear when I'm in Seattle. I thought that would make you more mad than the Cowboys reference, yeah? I love being in Seattle. I've been here probably two dozen times, and it's only rained once on me, so I'm not quite sure what you people complain about all the time. Uh, I go back home and tell my wife, we can, we can totally live there. She says, it rains all the time. I said, I've never seen it. Uh, so, but it's beautiful. Great to be here with you uh, this morning. Um, I love uh, the opportunity to be in rooms like this with you uh, and to stand on stages like this where I know week in and week out, you all are incredibly blessed with leadership at this church that faithfully proclaims the word of God to you. And so it's an honor for me to stand in a place where I know um, faithfulness just exudes uh, into the life of this body, and it's, it's exciting to hear of all that God is doing in your church as a result of that. Best way to introduce myself to you is to show you a few pictures of where I come from. So I'm going to show you uh, uh, four pictures, an iteration of our family over the last year. This is the uh, all-female, all-estrogen, all-drama world that I live in. Uh, everything is a really big deal all the time. Everything is a really big deal all the time. This is my wife, Emily, of 15 years, who is back home with a much, much, much harder job than me. Uh, I uh, fly around on airplanes and, you know, eat alone uh, often, and, uh, and she's back home wrangling uh, these, these folks. So that's our oldest, Macy, in the back. Presley is down on the left. Darby is down in the middle. And then Marley is in my lap, and it's in large part Marley's fault that I'm here with you this morning. And so we'll share a little bit more of that story later. So this is us about a year, 18 months ago. Uh, and then the next picture uh, is the next iteration of our family. So this is still all of us, but with another dose of estrogen there in the middle, a uh, little eight-year-old girl, Allie, who came to us through foster care, spent several months with us, and we deeply loved her and uh, had to grieve the loss of letting her go. Uh, and the next iteration of our family, shortly after that, um, this situation showed up at our door, and this is nothing more than just a big old situation. So this is um, Kiera, 23 years old. This is not foster care. This was actually an effort to prevent foster care for her newborn baby girl twins. So all, that's all female there. Even the babies are female. Uh, <clears throat> that's Aviana and Anaya. The only way to tell Aviana and Anaya apart was uh, one of them has six fingers and six toes on each hand and foot, which I thought was awesome. Kiara didn't. She wanted it fixed, but I tried to convince her to um, uh, keep it because who has that, right? That's awesome. So uh, we caught wind of this story and invited them to come and live in our home after she was discharged from the hospital, help transition, get her on her feet, um, not only just uh, uh, the stage of life she was in, but also just for any mom coming home with two newborn twins, just the shock and awe of that. And so Kiera and the girls lived with us for a while. We got to set them up in an apartment uh, nearby and, and help really help get her on her feet. We're still very connected to her, and she's still very much a part of our family as are uh, um, Aviana and Anaya. The next iteration of our family, the most recent, is this. This is uh, Guiana, 17-year-old foster daughter, came to us with her newborn baby uh, son, Jordan. So we've got a little bit of boy in the mix there. Jordan and I are buddies, uh, and we will be for a long time. Uh, this was a tragic story that came to us. She's grown up in foster care since she was six years old. She is now 18 years old. So literally two-thirds of her life have been spent in the system. And rightfully so. She's angry. She's upset. Uh, it's not fair. She didn't ask for this. And all of these things that she feels are real and valid. And so she shows up at our home not uh, with gratitude and, and thankfulness. Uh, no, that's unrealistic. But with, with anger and, and um, um, pushback. Uh, and so we have this beautiful now tension of a relationship of, of proving trust to her and her finally understanding that there's people in her life that she can't. And trust, especially in the situation that she wasn't planning for at 17 years old, having a baby boy. And so this is just a reflection of the family that we come from. And I show you these pictures not to say, look at us, look at what we're doing, not by any means. I show you these pictures to say, look at them. 
These are real life human beings. Look at Marley, look at Aviana and Anaya, look at Kiera, look at, at Ali, look at Jordan, look at Guiana. These are real life human beings. And so what we talk about this morning and even the stories that you've heard already this morning, these are not first and foremost concepts. This isn't just some conceptual idea. It's not even some theological idea, although it is. This is more than just a good theological idea. This is more than just a really profound concept. This is real life human beings. <clears throat> These are real life people. These are the kind of people that you see in the grocery store and pass by having no idea of what their story is. These are real life kids, not anything unlike your own kids. These are three and four and five and seven and 10 year old kids just like your Kids, And so I want us to set the framework this morning that what we're talking about, yes, is theological, yes, is a beautiful concept, but more than that, it's human. It's us and them. It's not, it's not us versus them. It's not even us for them, but it's all of us together in this thing called life, stumbling our way through it in desperate need of grace in equal measures. It's not one is inferior and we're going to, or it's not one that's superior and we're going to help those who are inferior. No, it's understanding that we are all impoverished. We are all in this thing called life together. Black, white, tall, short, big, little, rich, poor, does not matter. That grace is the great equalizer of us all and we are all desperately in need of it as we stumble through this thing called life together. That's what we talk about this morning. So what I want us to do this morning is to take a look at how the gospel informs our call and our privilege to step into the lives of those around us, to see hard and broken places and to respond, to shift our posture, to shift our perspective uh, in a way that the world looks at that and says it's crazy. It's so countercultural. It's so counterintuitive. And in many ways, to the, to the progression of our lives, the way that the world says we should, we should move, it's even counterproductive in terms of the world's standards. As the world says, you should pursue things like comfort and convenience and power and prestige and all of these things. The gospel compels us not only to do things that are counterintuitive and countercultural, uh, but also, according to the world standards, counterproductive. That we would actually take a step back from the things the world says we should pursue, and you and I would begin to pursue better things that we would begin to set better goals and dream better dreams and establish better visions for what we want our own individual lives and the life of our family to be about. That we would do things different because we are different in the gospel. And so what we're gonna do is build a framework of the gospel around God's heart for the marginalized and the oppressed, God's heart for the orphan, God's heart for the helpless and the hopeless. We're going to build a frame around that. And then towards the end, we're going to begin to paint a picture of what that looks like in our own lives. And so the goal this morning is not that everyone would feel emotionally overwhelmed and guilty uh, and want to go adopt every orphan in Africa. That's not the goal by any means. The goal is not this emotional response. The goal is not this guilt-driven response. The goal is walking out of this place with a new and deep and profound appreciation of the gospel in our own lives and a new and deep and profound processing through the application and the demonstration of that gospel through our lives. That's the goal this morning that we would come to a deeper celebration of the gospel and that we would begin to ask God, how can we demonstrate that gospel in wider and more specific ways? So let's begin to build that framework. And one of the most beautiful places that Paul lays out the essence and the substance of the gospel for us, we see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And so we are first going to begin to talk about the gospel for us. Then we're going to begin to talk about the gospel through us. Because as you look in scripture, you are hard pressed to find the separation between celebration and demonstration. Ultimately, what you'll see is that the scriptures teach what we demonstrate is a reflection of what we celebrate. And what we celebrate will ultimately be reflected in what we demonstrate. 
And so the place for us to begin this morning is not talking about demonstration, but it's first and foremost bringing us to a place of deep celebration. The gospel in us, that we would come to a place of deep celebration of the gospel in us and then begin to think through a wide application and demonstration of the gospel through us. So in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, one of my favorite places that Paul comprehensively lays out the blanket of the gospel over us all. We begin to see some beautiful applications of it uh, in our own lives. Beginning in verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So let's stop right there. That's my favorite Christmas verse that I never hear preached at Christmas. So what we've got a few months from now, you can start working on your pastor. You got three months to work on your pastor. Preach this at Christmas. Preach this at Christmas. Right there in that short statement, we see the whole essence of Christmas outlined. When the fullness of time had come. That phrase essentially means at just the right time. Another translation, the, the root of that phrase, the essence of that phrase is at just the right time. At just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's Christmas. That's what we celebrate. That Jesus was born uh, through Mary. Born of a woman. Born under the law. That phrase, under the law, literally means condemned to die. That he was born, condemned to die. So the essence of Christmas in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, is this. At just the right time, Jesus was born to die. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That God would, would incarnate himself. If you were sitting in a seminary class, you would begin to hear the word incarnation, the doctrine of incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God incarnated himself into the person of Jesus. The best way for my simple uh, Texas mind to understand the doctrine of incarnation is through the, through the grid of Tex-Mex food. I, don't, I was in Seattle, I was in Spokane uh, a number of months ago, and they said, hey, since you're from Texas, we thought we'd want to, you'd want to go to a Mexican restaurant. And I said, I don't, I like, I don't know if PNW Mexican is like, uh, you know, uh, you know, honoring me because I'm from Texas. So we went and it was all right, but there's something in Texas called Tex-Mex. And in Tex-Mex, there's this stuff called chili con carne, right? Most of you are familiar with it. The definition of chili con carne is chili con carne means with meat. Incarnation literally means with meat. So the doctrine of incarnation, just like chili con carne, my seminary professors are rolling over in their graves right now that this is how I explain it. (laughs) The doctrine of incarnation is this. It's God with meat on. It's God wrapping himself in flesh, born of a woman, condemned to die. And so here's what we see, the precedence that we see set in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, about who God is and what God does. This is the essence of Christmas, that God sees the plight of his people. He sees hard and broken places. He sees difficult things. He sees darkness. He sees brokenness, and he steps towards it. That's what God does. Not only does God step towards it and not away from it, he steps towards it and he wraps himself up in it. Not only does he wrap himself up in our brokenness, but he carries our brokenness to the cross because he's born condemned to die. He allows our brokenness to break him so that we don't have to be broken anymore. That's Christmas. That's Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. That's the essence of who God is, and it sets the precedent for how he is always and consistently going to respond and relate to us. That God is the kind of God that sees our hard and our broken, and he steps into it, not away from it. See, the deal that religion makes with us, the the suggestion that religion makes to us about who God is is this, that God is the kind of God that makes a contract with you. He makes a deal with you. This is religion. That God's the kind of God that looks at you and says, I see your heart, I see you're broken, now here's the deal I'll make with you. If you can clean yourself up enough and get your act together enough, then maybe one day you can be good enough to move from where you are to where I am. But in the meantime, you've got a lot of work to do to get yourself from where you are to where I am. That's religion. 
it, it reminds me of this 15-year-long conversation that my wife and I have going on in our marriage. Not an argument, just a conversation that happens very frequently in our home. And it revolves around uh, this appliance that most of us have that we've spent hundreds of dollars on uh, because it suggests that it's able to do something that I don't believe it's actually capable of doing. It's this appliance called the dishwasher. The name of the appliance itself says something pretty bold. It, it claims that it can actually wash dishes. However, guys, I tend to not do, I tend to not wash the dishes well enough before I actually put them into the appliance called the dishwasher. So this is an ongoing conversation between my wife and I. And I don't appreciate it because this thing claims to do something. It's just constantly lying to us. I should be able to leave a crusted dish of spaghetti sauce out for a week. It's, it's rock hard. I put it in the thing that says it can wash dishes and it actually washed those dishes, right? But instead I have to clean it before I put it in it. Or it reminds me of the very rare times that we have someone come over and clean our house. Very rare times. We live like savages for a year. We call someone to clean us, to bail us out from underneath this mess, right? Guys, what happens the day before the cleaning people are coming the next day? <clears throat> Your wife says, hey, we got to clean up the house because why the cleaning lady? Well, no, absolutely. <laughs> this is the one day we can live like total animals because we know that rescue is coming tomorrow, right? It makes no logical sense. They're going to earn every penny that we pay them tomorrow. I'm going to make sure of that. That's the logic of religion. The logic of religion says God is the kind of God that says, I see your brokenness. I see your darkness. I see your hardness. I see your difficulty. If you need to clean yourself up enough before you can actually come to the only one that can clean you up. That's the contract of religion, which just does not make sense logically. And it certainly doesn't make sense spiritually. But that's not the gospel. The gospel in Galatians 4 says that God is the kind of God that says, I see you where you are, and I am coming after you. I'm stepping into your brokenness. I'm carrying your brokenness to the cross. I'm going to be broken by your brokenness so that you don't have to be broken anymore. God completely flips the script on how we view and respond to hard and broken things. See, the world says when you see hard and broken things, avoid them, insulate yourself from them, pretend like they don't exist, set up whatever life you need to set up that in such a way that you can live the rest of your years pretending like the hard and the broken doesn't exist around you. That's what the world suggests us to do. The gospel flips the script on how we posture ourselves towards and, and, and the perspectives that we have towards hard and broken things. We don't isolate and insulate, but we see hard and broken things and we step towards them because that's what Jesus has done for us. So in verse 5, Paul begins to lay out just the practical implications of what it means uh, for Jesus to step towards us. And in verse 5, he says, Jesus did this to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. There's that word now that we're all familiar with, adoption as sons. So the first outworking of, of what happens when Jesus steps into our story at just the right time and begins to affect this comprehensive change is that our pasts are, 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 are dealt a decisive death blow. He says to redeem those who were under the law. Remember that phrase, under the law? Who were condemned to die. The scriptures are very clear that outside of Jesus, there was odds and enmity between us and God. There was separation and fraction. There was distance between us and God. There was an offense between us and God. And we were condemned under the weight of a law that we could not live up to. But verse 4 says Jesus was born. He was born under that law. And he redeemed us out from underneath that law so that we might enter into this new relationship with God. So that we might be brought into the family of God through adoption. We were once not a part of the family of God, but now because of the work of Jesus, we've been brought into the family of God. So verse 5 says that when Jesus steps into our story, wraps himself up in our brokenness, the first consequence of that is that there is therefore now no condemnation in our past. 
Our pasts are no longer sources of condemnation. We have been freed from the weight of a law that we could not live up to. All the weight of that law and the burden of that law and the expectation of that law has been placed on the back of Jesus and it crushed him on the cross. Romans 8 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Our past have been dealt a decisive death blow. Here's what that means for you and I. It means that you and I now in Jesus can look back on our past and it's no longer a source of condemnation for us. It's now actually a platform of celebration for us. Because we can look back on our past and rather than feel the weight of guilt, we can feel the joy of of freedom. We can say, gosh, look at my past and look at what Jesus has done. It doesn't weigh me down anymore. It's no longer a source of condemnation, is what scripture says. It's actually a platform of great celebration. Look at what once was and now look at what now is. Praise Jesus. Our past have been dealt a decisive death blow. Verse 6, Paul continues, because you are sons, this is present tense language, because you are now sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So right now, your new present reality in Christ right now, literally right now, this morning, is that you are a child of God because of Christ. And the evidence of that is that the spirit of Christ has been infused within you. There came a point in Jesus' ministry where he got his disciples around and he said, all right, guys, here's the deal. I'm leaving. And they say, no, 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 no. We need you here. We, we need you to walk by us and teach us and, and, and be with us. And he says, actually, if I leave, it's going to be better for you because what I'm sending to live inside of you is far better than me just walking beside you. In junior high, to help me understand uh, the concept of what it means to have the spirit inside of us, uh, it was in the heyday of Michael Jordan, the good old days of NBA, right? Going back to our roots. And my youth pastor said this to me. He said, if you wanted to play basketball like Michael Jordan, you would hire Michael Jordan to coach you and to teach you everything that Michael Jordan knows. He would run up and down the court with you. He would show you everything that he does. But at the end of the day, you will never, ever, ever, ever play basketball just like Michael Jordan. There's always going to be this, this, this separation because he's outside of you. He's distinct from you. The only way for you to ever actually truly play basketball like Michael Jordan is for Michael Jordan to jump into your skin and to play through you. Brilliant junior high youth ministry way of explaining the spirit of God within us. This is what Jesus is saying. No, it's better for you if I leave because I'm actually going to jump inside your skin and play through you. And that's far better than me just walking beside you. The Spirit of God testifies to the fact that we are children of God and it says that right now in our present reality, we can cry out to God because of the Spirit as Abba, Father. The Spirit of God has given us the ability and the capacity to refer to God as Abba, Father. Our past have been dealt a decisive death blow and our present reality has been shifted. That word Abba is a tender and affectionate form of the word Father. Our modern translation might be the word Daddy. So Paul is actually being a bit redundant, but on purpose. He says, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts crying, Daddy, Father. Now, the difference between my girls calling me Daddy and calling me Father is huge. They don't call me Father. They would never come and say, Father, can we have some ice cream, please, while we watch a movie? It's like, don't talk to me like that. Creepy, British, proper. No. I'm Daddy. Daddy, can we have some ice cream? And when they really want something, you know, they know how to lay the daddy part on thick. I'm daddy, but I'm also father. And the older they get, especially when they're 16, I'll definitely be father, especially to the boys that are over at our house. But right now, what's more important for me, for my girls to understand in terms of how I relate to them and how they can relate to me is not so much father, but daddy. It denotes this this intimacy and this affection and this approachability. So what Paul is painting here, the picture he's painting is beautiful and profound. He says that in our past, our relationship with God was defined by odds and enmity. There was separation there. But now in our new present reality, our relationship with God is defined by intimacy and affection and approachability. 
Is he any less our father? Of course not. But he's now also our daddy. And that's huge. Scripture says that we can approach the throne of God, the throne of grace, with, with confidence and expectation. On what grounds can we approach the throne of God with confidence and expectation? On the grounds that we know exactly how he's going to respond to us, like a good daddy would. I can bring anything to him, and that's what we're pressing into our girls now. You can always talk to mommy and daddy about anything. And we want them to understand we will always respond to them with love and affection. I can bring my failings to God. I can bring my weaknesses to God. I can bring my worries to God, my anxieties. I can bring my successes. I can bring my dreams. I can bring it all to him, knowing exactly how he's going to respond to me like a good daddy would. He's not angry with me. He's not disappointed in me. He's not embarrassed by me. All the anger of God towards my sin has already been poured out on the back of Jesus. My past has been decisively dealt with. My present reality has been shifted. And then Paul wraps up this beautiful framework of the gospel in verse 7 when he says, So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then you are an heir through God. Paul's now speaking future language. We are an heir through God. An heir is someone who lives today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. We all know what an heir is. Someone who lives today with a promise that is true today, but is yet to be fulfilled until tomorrow. Every time, almost every time that you start to read through scripture uh, as it relates to our future of what's to come in Christ, almost every time, somewhere in the context, you're going to come across the word glory. Almost every time as it relates to what we can expect in the future, what we can look forward to in the future, what we can anticipate, glory is what's coming. While our outward bodies waste away, scriptures say, our inward souls long for and groan for the glory of redemption that's yet to be fulfilled. While our present struggles are heavy uh, and, 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 and strong and real, the weight of glory that will be revealed far surpasses the weight of our current struggles. That's what scripture says, that glory is coming. So my past has been decisively dealt with. My present reality has been shifted with God and the future trajectory of our lives literally has been shifted for all of eternity. Glory is coming. Here's what that means for you and I, and, and it's unbelievably important that we wrap our minds around this in our current social and political climate. Because we currently live in a world, uh, and the primary mantra of our world is fear. Fear. Everywhere you turn, we are being told of yet another thing that we need to be afraid of. And it's fear-mongering at its best. There's some legitimate things that we should be aware of and concerned with. But everywhere we turn, we are constantly being told of, of what to be afraid of. Not too long ago, we all endured this really wonderful political campaign. It was just a joy to, to journey through together, right? And really, the essence of that campaign was this. You need to be really, really afraid of what's going to happen if you don't elect me. That's really the baseline narrative of almost every media outlet that we, that we live with. That's really the baseline narrative of almost uh, every major blockbuster film that Hollywood puts out, apocalyptic in nature. I blame it all on Aerosmith and Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis in the late 90s. Just this, like the first legit, like non-weird, bad, you know, sci-fi, but for real good, you know, and, the, and then the Aerosmith song at the end, just the icing on the cake, just beautiful. It's Armageddon. We're all concerned about a number of things, and those, the questions really are, where is this thing headed? Uh, how are we going to get there, and who's going to save us from it all? The political campaigns feed into that narrative. Hollywood feeds into that narrative. Our 24-hour news stations feed into that narrative. Here's a news report on, you should, are you vaccinating your kids? You should be really afraid of that. Uh, the next session is, uh, are you not vaccinating your kids? You should be afraid of that too. Well, now I'm afraid of both things. What, 
Well, you should just be afraid of kids in general, right? Just don't have, the solution is don't have kids. You know, the economy takes a downward turn. Uh, you need to be very afraid, buy your gold bars like today, right? Take out your reverse mortgage today uh, or we're all gonna be eating uh, beans and rice out of the gutter, right? Uh, everything, everything. A kid in South Dakota gets a cold, that's gonna be the next, you know, swine flu that wipes us all out. So hunker down now, you're like, I wait, back to train. A kid, people live in South Dakota? That's weird, I didn't even know that, right? Should I be afraid of that too? You know, I'm going to have to move to South. Everything is be afraid, be very, very afraid. But in Jesus, the script has been flipped. Is that when you and I look at what's to come, we don't look at what's to come in, with fear. We look at what's to come in, in, with anticipation, with hope. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be aware today. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be diligent today. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be wise today. But what it does mean is that we don't have to be afraid today. Because we know, in the end, Jesus wins over all of this. The gospel answers those three questions. Where are we headed? Towards glory. How are we going to get there? It's going to be a little rough along the way. Who's going to save us from it all? Jesus is. That is our, our present security in the future hope of glory that we've been given. We live in neighborhoods. We sit on the sidelines of our kids' sports uh, events. We work in offices. We sit in classrooms surrounded by people who are afraid. They live according to this baseline narrative of fear. What's going to happen if something happens to my kid or I don't have enough money or this or that? Worst case scenario. And they need to see you and I not afraid. They need to be able to ask us why we're not afraid. And we need to be able to tell them why we're not afraid. Not in like some cheesy Jesus bumper sticker Christianity kind of way. But like in a real gut-wrenching, soul-wrenching, it is literally my only hope and the only way I fall asleep at night kind of way. Because I know in the end, over all of this, Jesus is going to win. And that's the only thing that keeps me going. This is the gospel for us. That God is the kind of God that sees our heart and our broken and steps into it and begins to radically retell a more beautiful story as a result of it. Past, present, and future. Which brings us to James chapter 127 the privilege that you and I have been given to do for others exactly what Jesus has done for us. See, the parallels between the gospel in us and the gospel through us are beautiful and unending. When we talk about orphan care, when we talk about foster care, when we talk about anything related to, to our posture towards those that are marginalized and oppressed and helpless and hopeless, the gospel radically flips the script on our response to that and then lays out these beautiful parallels between what God is inviting us to do for others as a result of what he's done for us. The invitation that scripture gives us into the lives of others is very much rooted in what Jesus has done for us, that we would be the kind of people that see hard places and broken people and step towards them, not away from them. And when we step towards them, that we would meet them where they are in the context of their past brokenness, and we would offer them up a new present reality where once their existence was defined by instability and insecurity, now they can live in an environment that offers up to them the potential of hope and stability and love and affection. And as a consequence of that, shift the future trajectory of their lives, literally forever, where once they lived in a constant state of fear and concern and unknown of what's to come, we can now instill within them the possibility of hope that you don't have to be afraid of tomorrow. What am I going to eat tomorrow? Am I going to eat tomorrow? Who's going to love me tomorrow? Who's going to abandon me tomorrow? Where am I going to sleep tomorrow? Am I even going to have a place to sleep tomorrow? You don't have to be afraid anymore. This is the essence of the gospel in us, and the beauty of the gospel through us. Not that we strut into their stories with a cape on our shoulders, but we crawl into their stories with the cross on our back, 
And we begin to meet them where they are and shift everything else about them as a result. And so James chapter 127 is actually not a command in Scripture. This is not a command verse. This, this isn't a verse that tells us what to do. This is a verse that describes what we're doing. This is a descriptive verse. That word religion is not our word religion. It, that word religion means an outward display of something that's inwardly true. That's what we're talking about here this morning. An outward display of the gospel that is inwardly true in us. So this outward display of something that's inwardly true, one of the purest and most undefiled outward displays of the gospel is to come alongside, to visit, to step into the lives of orphans and widows in their affliction. In the original language, that word and does not exist. We just put that in there in the English to make it flow a little better, but it literally reads to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we want to keep ourselves unstained from the perspectives and the paradigms and the pressures of the world. Then let's radically redefine the script for how we respond to broken places and hard people. We don't isolate and insulate because in our isolation and in our insulation and in our pursuit of comfort and convenience, we become stained by the world. Instead, this description of the outward display of the gospel says that one of the purest and most undefiled outward displays of the gospel is to step into the lives of the marginalized and the oppressed. I don't think that James simply is isolating orphans and widows, although those are two primary categories. I don't think that if we went to James and said, James, we noticed you didn't say homeless people. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you don't care about them. He'd say, that's right, I do not care at all about homeless people. No, of course not. We wouldn't go to him and say, we noticed you didn't say victims of sex trafficking in there. And he'd say, that's because I don't care about them. Of course not. James is simply using orphans and widows in the context that he writes this in as the two really predominant uh, categories of people that represented isolation and marginalization. And he's simply suggesting something to us. That one of the purest, most undefiled reflections of the gospel in this world is when you see hard places and broken people and you step towards them. Because it puts the gospel on display with great vividness and clarity in a way that very little else does. Your parents, your friends, your community, your coworkers look at you when you do that and they say, why would you do that? And they just set up on a platter the opportunity for you to share with them your why. Because this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. And it is no longer really a question of should I, but it now becomes a question of, okay, how should I? The should I question has been long answered. Now the question becomes, how should I? One of the most beautiful things about the collective diversity of the body of Christ is that while we all celebrate that gospel the same way, we all don't demonstrate that gospel in the same ways. Scripture describes us as a collection of individual parts all coming together for the common good. Some are ears and some are eyes and some are hands and some are feet. If we were all a bunch of right feet, we'd literally run around in circles all day long and never get anything done. No, we need some to be ears and eyes and hands and feet. Romans chapter 12 says it this way. As in one body, we have many members. The members don't all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. We are individually members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let us use them. It means explore your creativity. Explore your uniqueness. Unity in the body of Christ does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all come together and have to look the same, act the same, talk the same, dress the same, eat the same. No, the body of Christ isn't uniformity, it's unity. It's a collective diversity coming together as individual parts, hands, feet, eyes, toes, for the common good, for the common purpose. It means that we all don't have to do the same thing, but we are all certainly capable of doing something. It means that some of you in this church will bring kids into your home. And some of you in this church know that that's already what you need to do. And you've been kind of veiling, uh, your, veiling your disobedience uh, underneath this blanket of spirituality. Well, we're, we're still praying about it and we're still talking about it. And God's kind of up there going, stop praying to me about it. Like, stop asking me about it. I've already made it clear to you, right? 
You're not fooling me. Some of you just need to do it. Others of you, the absolute last thing and worst thing that you could ever possibly do for you and that kid, God bless them, is bring them into your home, right? <laughs> the worst thing that you can do is bring a kid into your home for some of you. And if you're unsure, I don't know, is that me? Is that the word? Ask your friends. And they should be able to say, dude, do not bring a kid into your home. <laughs> you can barely feed yourself. Like, that's the worst thing you should do. And if you don't have friends that are honest with you like that, you need better friends. That's your first problem. So let's talk about that. Some of us are going to bring kids into our home. The rest of us are going to find ways to wrap around and support them because that's how the body of Christ works. Share a quick story of my brother. My brother flies helicopters uh, for a living, essentially. Uh, When I went off to undergrad to study liberal arts, uh, communications, he went off to West Point. Uh, When I went off to seminary to talk about theology and things that most people don't care about, he went off to ranger school became one of the most highly trained machines that the government's ever produced. Uh, He's the kind of guy that uh, has seen things and done things that um, even if he um, wanted to talk about them, he wouldn't be allowed or he'd have to kill you, which he could do with his pinky just like that if he wanted to, which terrifies me a little bit, but also kind of... uh, um, Uh, wells up within me this sense of pride and respect because standing by a very quiet guy who does this for a living, who has seen things and protected me from enemies I don't even know I have, flown into parts of the world I don't even know exist and could literally at a moment's notice just reach over and kill me with his pinky, there's a certain level of respect you have for a guy like that, right? And I'm always wondering, what's he thinking? He's, he's looking at the room. He's already identified who he's going to have to take out if he needs to. He already knows where all the exits are. He's assessed the whole situation, no matter where we are. I sit there in Sunday school class with him and think, what does he see in here that I don't see, right? <laughs> I know it's Sunday school, but he sees something, right? This is my brother. He and I, we live in the same town. We have the same haircut for two different reasons. My wife, uh, for, me, for him, it's job. For me, it's my wife a few years ago said, I think it's time. So we did it, right? <laughs> I love you. I think it's time. So we did. We play on the same softball team. We sit in the same Sunday school class. Our lives on the surface look very similar, but underneath they couldn't be any more different. I've spent most of my adult life, career life, standing on stages speaking, sitting behind computers writing, uh, sitting in classrooms learning. He spent most of his adult life uh, training, flying into parts of the world that we don't even know exist to protect us from enemies we don't even know we have. It's very easy for me to look at a guy like that and to feel incompetent and inferior and guilty for all the things that I'm not doing. Because I look at a guy like that and say, gosh, you know, thank you for doing what you do. But here's the crazy thing is he looks at me and says, thank you for doing what you do. I could never do what you do. Get up in front of people and talk and he's right. He's awful. It'd be horrible. <laughs> the worst thing, the, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen is that I'm the guy getting dropped out of that helicopter to protect you. You do not want that. You also equally do not want him standing up here preaching to you. It would be awful. That's how the body of Christ works. I can look at a guy like that and say, thank you for doing what you do so that guys like me don't have to. And he can look at me and say, thank you for doing what you do so that guys like me don't have to. That's how the body of Christ works. I recently met a guy in Kansas City. If you've ever been to Kansas City, they love their barbecue. I'm at a large church event, hundreds of foster families. They're honoring them. And the restaurant that's catering is a barbecue restaurant. The owner of the restaurant comes up to me afterwards and says, hey, I'm a member of this church. I own this restaurant. We're in our mid-60s. We're not going to bring kids into our home. Uh, but But what I do know how to do is barbecue. I own the best barbecue restaurant in town. I've told our church, anytime you have a function here at the church for foster families, we're going to donate the best barbecue in town. In essence, this guy looked at me and said, I know what I can't do, and I don't feel bad about that. But I know what I can do, and I'm going to do that really, really well. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all capable of doing something. So the question for you is, what's your something? What's your pure and undefiled reflection of the gospel? Because it's not all going to be the same for us. It's not all going to be the same. I know car mechanics in the town I live in, one Saturday a month on their marquee, they put a sign out that says, free oil changes for foster families and single moms. Here's a mechanic. Says, I'm not going to bring a kid into my home, but what I can do, I'm going to do well. I'm going to use my business for this purpose. So what's your something? 
Let me end with a story real quick, and then we will be done. When I was nine years old, I learned that the man I had grown up calling dad was, in fact, not my biological father. I think we've got a picture here. One of the things that confused me most growing up was, why, am I, why, why is my dad so short, right? Uh, well, at nine years old, I learned that he's, in fact, not my biological father. My mom, my dad, my older sister, and I sit down for an impromptu family meeting. My mom begins to detail out for me the first two, two and a half years of my life that at the hands of a biological father were marked by almost every vice that you can name in the book, and he excelled in it. It ultimately led my mom to be in a very broken place alone uh, with a very broken story and two super cute pieces of baggage to go along with that story. My seven-year-old sister and three-year-old me. I was the cuter of the two pieces of baggage. My mom, with her broken story and two kids, strolls into a church in North Dallas one Sunday, sees a young worship leader up on stage. They develop a friendship, develop a relationship, eventually fall in love. And at the age of 23 years old, this man would get down on his knee and ask to take the hand of my 32-year-old mom in marriage. 23-year-old guy, put yourself back in that place. It's a lifetime ago for many of us. Asking to take the hand of my 32-year-old mom in marriage and essentially gets down on his knee and says to her, I know your story, I love you because of your story, let's begin to write an entirely new story together. Turns to my sister and asks to take her hand to become his daughter. I love you, I know your story, I love you because of your story, let's begin to write an entirely new story together. Turns to me, asks to take my hand to become his son. I know your story, I love you because of your story, let's begin to write an entirely new story together. He would eventually marry my mom, and adopt my sister and I, and when he adopted me, he changed my first, middle, and last name. The old is gone, and the new has come. I have two birth certificates and six names. The old is gone, the new has come. Here's a man who at just the right time said, I see your story, and I see your brokenness, and I'm compelled to step towards it, not away from it. As a result of that, not only did he step into our past brokenness and alter my present reality, the new has come and the old is gone, he shifted the future trajectory of my life literally forever. I am 100% certain, based on what I know, that I would not be here with you today had this man, at the age of three years old, not stepped into my life and completely rewritten the script, past, present, and future. Fast forward some 30 years after my dad steps into my life, my wife and I have the opportunity to become foster parents. Our first placement shows up at our door April 25th, 2012. She was three days old at the time. Caseworker walks in, places this screaming baby in our arms, and everything about our lives is destroyed in that instant. In the best of ways and the worst of ways. Because it's impossible to hold a tragically abused story in your comfortable arms and not have your comfort and convenience completely dismantled by the tragedy that you're holding in your arms. One of them has to give. And the weight of brokenness that her story brought crushed the weight of our comfort and convenience. She completely destroyed our lives in the best and worst of ways. Everything that we thought about what we should pursue, even things that we thought about in the gospel, everything had to be reevaluated. In light of the reality that there are kids like this that literally live right up the street from us, and we have created these lives in such a way that we can pretend like they don't exist. I was still pastoring our church at the time, and it wrecked my heart as a pastor that we have created a church that pretends like this doesn't exist. That's a problem. I have created a life that, that could, could ultimately be lived out in comfort and convenience as if this doesn't exist, and that's a problem. I've gone to seminary. I've grown up in a pastor's home. I've, I've, I've pastored myself. I have not, I've learned more about the gospel in the last five years of this little girl's life than in all those other environments, some total combined, because it moves from words on a page to real-life human beings what it means for us to step into the lives, step into the stories of brokenness and have those stories radically altered. We were given the privilege to step into her story and to begin to write an entirely new one, past, present, and future. We were able to adopt her at the age of two, changed her first, middle, and last name. So she and I share that story. We have four birth certificates between the two of us and a whole lot of names. And she's almost at that age, but one day we'll sit down, probably have a Shopkins tea party or something like that, 
And we'll talk about birth certificates and about how Marley and Daddy are the same in that. There hasn't been a day that she's been in our home where we haven't paused and considered, gosh, where would we be right now? What would would she be doing right now? What would she be eating? Who would she be playing with? All these scenarios that pop up in your mind had we not been given the privilege to step into her life and to become a part of her life. But even more haunting than that is not so much what would her life look like right now had we not been given the privilege to step into it. The more haunting question for us is what would our lives look like right now had she not stepped into them and radically altered them past, present, and future. I shudder at the thought of where we might be today had her story not interjected itself into ours and completely flipped it upside down. Where would we be right now? And so I think in all of that, we're all compelled on some level to step back and to consider for ourselves, where would I be right now had Jesus not, at just the right time, seen my brokenness, seen my hardness, and stepped into it. Where would I be right now? For some of you, you might say, I'd be dead, I'd be in prison, I'd be so steeped in that sin that used to plague my life, you wouldn't even recognize me. But Jesus redeemed me out from underneath that. Where would I be right now had Jesus not stepped into my life and changed everything about it? That's the compelling question for us. And I'm convinced when you really begin to answer that question, it becomes the framework and the foundation and the basis as to why we would do for them what Jesus has so beautifully and richly and sufficiently and sacrificially done for us. So what's your why? In light of what Jesus has done for you, what's your why for them. Let me pray. So Father, we do thank you for your word, the richness of it, the relevance of it. We don't, we don't preach your word in such a way that makes it relevant. It is relevant, and so we preach it that way, that it speaks right to where we are in our lives, and it draws us into greater depths of intimacy with you. And so I pray, first and foremost, that you would draw us into a, a greater sense of celebration of the gospel in us, But that then, Father, as a result of that, by your spirit, you would give us the power and the wisdom and the boldness to identify what that that demonstration of the gospel might look like through us. Father, it's not the same for all of us. And so we pray for unique applications. We pray for unique insights and wisdom for what our something is. We thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.